Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw them, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. He said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he was obedient to them. His his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and years and in divine and human favor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of, um, well, a lot of disruption and um, probably some disappointment, some confusion, and just some general darkness that what is most true is that the world we live in is a world that has been visited and inhabited by you that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so we pray, Father, in this moment that you would help us to hold on to that hope and joy and that it would give life to our bones, to our weary souls, that the weary world would rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, it, <laughs> uh, I was not planning on getting to sing and play guitar today, but um, as Alyssa said, Micah uh, is out because of COVID, and so um, he himself doesn't have it, but he was exposed and was waiting for a test, and anyway, that's where we are. That's the world we're living in, um, which means that uh, we get to do double duty, and I certainly wish that we were in a room together, uh, and instead of, like, instead of what we're doing right now, but I hope that wherever you are, you're comfortable Hope your coffee is hot, and hope that uh, this uh, morning is a gift to you and your family and your people, whoever you're watching this with, uh, wherever you're watching this from, good morning. My name is Matthew, and I'm the lead pastor here at Emmanuel, and it is really a gift to even just in this weird, strange way hold space with one another uh, together. I want to just say something really briefly at the beginning of the, this, and that it has to do with the Bible. Um, so we're at, it's January 2nd. It's, it's the day or the week when a lot of us uh, in the church make some kind of decision around like what kind of devotional life do we want to have in the coming year. A lot of us are making those right now. We're making resolutions of one form or another around habits and health and money and so on. And 
Um, a lot of times, I, uh, I've, for the last three years, I've, I've used this as an opportunity to say, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, and it's been a huge and rich gift for me. I told you a couple of years ago I was using the Alpha reading plan, which you can find uh, in an app store. I think it's called Bible in One Year um, from the same people who made Alpha. The last two years, I've used the lectionary that we uh, put out there on the, the thing. And I just want to invite you, as you are thinking about a lot of other things right now and sort of coming out of the haze and malaise of cookies and and holidays and festivities to try to make a decision this week about what kind of rhythms you want to put into your life. I'll just tell you what mine are going to be this year. Um, after reading through the Bible three times now in a row, I'm going to take uh, a break essentially and slow down a little bit and just read the psalm readings and the gospel readings that we publish every week and that you can find uh, on our website or also when you come back here to the church uh, on the welcome table. I'm not saying that to be prescriptive, just to let you know, like, this is how I'm engaging this year. I feel like for the last couple of years, I've done a lot of reading, and it's been really good to just immerse myself in a story. Uh, this year, I feel a real need to just go really slowly with Jesus and to spend long, lingering time with him in the Gospels and to not rush past it. I just feel a desire to be close to Jesus this year, um, maybe more so than even previous years, just as I'm, as like all of us, trying to recover from what's been a very hard and, and straining a uh, couple of years. And so uh, I just want to encourage you, like find a Bible uh, and, and make a decision this year and start, like start tomorrow, start today about how you want to engage God's Word. There are lots and lots of reading plans online. Read the New Testament in a year, read the whole Bible in a year, read the Bible in two years. You can find all sorts of stuff if you go and look for it. Um, Madeline Lengel, the, uh, the beloved author, children's author, maybe known most notably for A Wrinkle in Time, but uh, just a profound and beautiful uh, voice from the 20th century, um, wrote this. It's a poem called In the Darkest Hour. It was a time like this, war and tumult of war, a horror in the air, hungry yawned the abyss, and yet there came the star and the child most wonderfully there. It was a time like this, of fear and lust for power, license and greed and blight. And yet the prince of bliss came into the darkest hour in quiet and silent light. And in a time like this, how celebrate we his birth when all things fall apart? Ah, wonderful it is. With no room on the earth, the stable is our heart. The work of Christmas, which we are in Christmas right now, um, we're in the midst of the 12 days of Christmas, which will wrap up on January 5th. Um, the work of Christmas has always been about tending to the presence of Christ in the world and most specifically within us. We sing, let every heart prepare him room. And this is what Christmas is about, making the space for Christ to come and dwell in us, in the earth, so that we can be his hands and feet on the earth. Christ has come into the world, and today he makes us his home. And what is this Christ like? What is this Christ child like? And into that question comes our text today that Jenny just read to us from Luke chapter 2. And if you want to follow along in your Bible, we're in Luke 2, 41 to 52. It's a strange little story about preteen Jesus. It's kind of odd and funny, and it might seem like a weird place to land Christmas, especially with all that's going on in the world today and all the things we could be talking about. Um, and yet, as I was sitting with the text the last couple of weeks, 
And this week specifically, I was really struck in, uh, by the idea that these are the first recorded words of Jesus. And, um, and they are wonderful words, friends. They are good news for you and me. And so we're just going to sit with the first recorded words of Jesus uh, this morning. I have five subject headings, but we're going to move through them pretty quickly. The first thing we see in this text is that the boy Jesus is the only one who knows where he is meant to be. Um, Our context is it's the Passover festival. His family has made pilgrimage. They've gone to Jerusalem from Nazareth. Um, It's a great big feast. Hundreds of thousands of people would descend on the city every year for this great festival of Passover. Um, And one of the things that we learn is that uh, there was enough going on that Jesus was sort of able to get lost. And in getting lost, his parents, it took a couple days for them to even figure out that he was lost. They were traveling with such a large party of people. There were so many people clamoring all around them. Um, And Jesus makes his way uh, to the temple. This is one of those really great moments in the Bible where we sort of peer into the mystery of like, what exactly is Jesus's self-awareness at this point? He's 12 years old. He has the brain and the body and the hormones of a 12-year-old. This is, uh, this is who he is. And yet, and yet, um, he has a deep, profound knowledge of himself, it seems. And I think it's probably safe to say that what we see in this is not like a really clear, oh, Jesus knew everything from the very beginning, or Jesus didn't know anything about his true heavenly sort of status, uh, but actually that it's maybe a bit more nuanced, that maybe Jesus himself as a young adolescent was in the process of discovering his own self like most of us are when we're 12 and 13 and 14 years old. Maybe Jesus was slowly putting pieces together and that those pieces began to sort of make sense of his experiences. He's 12 years old, which means that in Jewish culture, he is on the cusp of moving the gravity of his relationship from his relationship with Mary to his relationship with his father. Because at the age of 13, a Jewish boy would begin the religious training and the vocational training with their father. So Jesus is right at the point where he's about to become apprenticed to his father, who was a stonemason in Nazareth. And so that sort of like nurturing relationship with his mother is ending and his relationship with his father is really beginning, which is why it's so notable that the word father shows up in this so many times. Uh, Mary says to Jesus, where were you? Your father and I were worried for you. He says, I was with my father. I was in my father's house. So there's like a play on words and you need to understand the context of it. Jesus is the gravity of his relationship culturally is shifting from with mother is uh, with his mother, Mary to his father. And the question is, of course, like who is his father? Jesus, this is the second thing we see, had a crystal clear sense of who God was to him. The other thing we can tell from this episode, besides that Jesus is very smart and able to go toe-to-toe with religious rulers, which would have been a lot of fun to watch. It's always fun to watch like little prodigy kids just take down big masters. But Jesus had a deep personal sense of a relationship with God. And here's the thing, friends, that we can't miss around this. Jesus's um, awareness of his relationship to God as a father and son was radical and revolutionary in the time. It wasn't normal. In fact, nobody reading the Old Testament which is the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus had, that you and I have. Nobody reading the the Old Testament would have come away with the idea that the dominant way in which the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob wants to be known and related to is as father and son. It's in there for sure. It's in there. It's just not prevalent. If anything, you would maybe go away that the the husband-wife relationship is more prevalent in the Old Testament. But Jesus came with a word on his lips, and that word was father. He wanted to introduce the God of Abraham to his people with a new name. 
Brennan Manning, uh, in his book, Abba's Father, writes these words. He says, In his human journey, Jesus experienced God in a way that no prophet of Israel had ever dreamed or dared. Jesus was indwelt by the Spirit of his Father and given a name for God that would scandalize both the theology and the public opinion of Israel. The name that escaped the mouth of the Nazarene carpenter was Abba. Abba is um, a foreign word probably for most of us, unless you've been in church for a while or unless you speak um, Aramaic. But Abba is a familiar word for father. It's like um, dad, um, pop, papa. It's not necessarily like dad-da. Sometimes people say, oh, it's like he's calling him his dad-da. It's like, no, it's, it's more sophisticated than that because it's something that you would call, like a grown person would call their, their dad that. Um, but it is, in that sense, deeply familiar. It's something that says, like, I know you. I know what you're like. I, I, I know the sound of your voice. Abba is a child's name for a parent. It's personal. It's intimate. Jesus had a clear and uncomplicated self-understanding when it comes to who God is. He understood that God was, first and foremost, his Abba. It's interesting, if you read the New Testament, if you read the Gospels, you will see that Jesus never refers to God as anything other than Abba. Overhead cold. Um, he never refers to God as anything other than Abba, except when he's on the cross. It's the only time he uses a different name for God, and he just calls him God because he's, he's quoting Psalm 22. Jesus presents God to the world as his Abba. But then we see the third thing. Jesus doesn't hoard this intimacy for himself, but he invites us into it. Now, you have to keep turning the pages of Luke to see this, but if you will keep turning the pages of Luke, you'll see that one of the dominant pillars of Jesus' teaching was the presentation of God to the world as Father. He talks again and again about how we can feel safe in the world because our Father knows what we need, how our Father's good pleasure is to give us the kingdom, how our Father is like the father of sons who runs to the prodigal who comes home limping, covered in the, 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 the evidence of their sin and, and waywardness. Our Father in heaven is a good, gentle, tender, loving, persuasive, pursuing God, that that's what God is like. In fact, maybe only to the pronouncement of the kingdom of God is second in Jesus' teaching as far as centrality, that God can be related to, first and foremost, as a father. Even as a 12-year-old, Jesus is offering a counterpicture of God to the world. You could see it this way. If Jesus is, in fact, the second person of the Trinity, if the Christ is the second person of the Trinity in the flesh in Jesus of Nazareth, then in Luke 2, 41 to 52, this little preteen Jesus boy is, in, on behalf of the Trinity, inviting you and me to the table with our Heavenly Father. J.I. Packer, the great Anglican theologian, author, uh, he writes, um, I believe this is in Knowing God, I, I can't remember the source, but he says, you can sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as the revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge, Packer says, how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child of having God as his or her father. 
For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. So Jesus knows who he is. He knows who God is. He's his father. Jesus invites us into this relationship. And so the question is, as we begin this year together, is what is Jesus inviting us into? And, and why should we do this? Which is the fourth thing I want to draw out of this text. Claiming your identity as God's beloved child um, will change your life. Uh, another way to say it is it will it'll stabilize your life. If you read the stories of Jesus, one of the things that you see in his practices, in the way he talks about himself and his father, and this is in all four Gospels, Jesus was a person deeply rooted in connection to his father. And the fact that his father was with him always is what gave Jesus the strength to do the things he did. Even on the cross, Jesus is able to endure incredible torment because he knows his father is with him. Even on the cross, as Jesus hangs there, he is having a conversation with his father. He's praying for the people who are crucifying him. He's saying, into your hand, I commit my spirit. He's talking to his father because he knows God is with him. He knows his father is with him. In, in John uh, chapter 13, there's this really great moment where it says uh, it's the Last Supper and Jesus is about to wash the disciples' feet. But it says this is why he washes the disciples' feet. And then Jesus, knowing from whom he had come and to whom he was going, and knowing that all things had been given to him by his Father, rose from the table, took off his outer garment, tied a towel around his waist, and began to wash the disciples' feet. In other words, Jesus' ability to serve people, the fact that he was able to lower himself and put himself at the service of others, even people who didn't understand or who would take advantage of him, all these things flowed for Jesus, stemmed for him out of his knowledge that God was his father. So when Jesus is inviting you and me into a relationship with the father, with God, our father, he is inviting us into the very thing that gave the energy and power and vision and wisdom and strength and solidity to Jesus. And if you're anything like me, those are things that my life is lacking right now. I'm looking for lots of wisdom and I'm finding lots of guesses about what is going on in the world or how the world works. I'm looking for things that are solid and stable and instead it feels like we are living in a constantly shifting uh, landscape where, where things are turned upside down constantly. And what the Father, what the relationship with Father was able to offer Jesus was in the midst of all that, in the midst of tumult and turbulence, there was a sense of stability, solidity. He knew who he was. What I'm trying to say is that the preteen Jesus is just sort of casually in an offhanded way saying to you and me that your life could be something completely different if you would also find your identity in this safety and security of a relationship with your Father in heaven. One of the great um, thinkers, philosophers, and theologians of the past, Soren Kierkegaard, probably recognize his name, he, um, he masterfully... Uh, uh, wrote about sin as, in his words, uh, finding your identity in anything other than God. So according to Kierkegaard, to, to what sin is at its, at its source is, is not to like do a thing you know you shouldn't do, but it's actually like what's behind why we're doing the thing. In other words, what, is, what, what, am I, what promise is this thing holding out to me that I think is going to be met? What identity am I finding in this thing? And so this is sort of a, a sort of a silly way to do this, I guess, but maybe it might be helpful. I was thinking about this like through the lens of Enneagram styles. You know, we talk about the Enneagram here sometimes. It's, it's a helpful personality test. It's ancient. It goes way back. And, and if you've been here for a while, you've probably heard us talk about it. You don't have to take it. 
We're not married to it. It's just a helpful tool. But Enneagrams, are, they're made up of nine different numbers. Each, each number has its own sort of personality, like um, strengths and weaknesses, like their own sort of like core sins that they struggle with. And they're the things that they're like naturally gifted at, the things that they give to the world. Enneagram ones, which sometimes are called perfectionists. The, a lot, the, one of the struggles for being an Enneagram one, I'm not one of those, is seeking to find an identity and being right. An Enneagram 2, which is what's called a helper, might, might find like their core identity is they want to be, be needed. An Enneagram 3, which is what I am, might find that their core identity is wanting to feel accomplished, like you've gotten something done. An Enneagram 4 might be the desire to feel uh, original, an individual, a person who stands out from the rest, who doesn't look like everyone else. An Enneagram 5 uh, might be a person who's looking for, uh, to always be correct, to have competency, to, to not be caught off guard. Um, Enneagram sixes, which are called loyalists, is it's just the, the to, to have to have people know that they are reliable, that they're trustworthy. An Enneagram seven, which is called an enthusiast, a, a core identity might be to, to know that you're always going to be like <laughs> you're going to have fun with this person. This person's going to make your life better. They're going to make your life fun, more fun. Enneagram eight, which are called challengers, they want to be persuasive. They want to win. Enneagram nines are called peacemakers. They want people to be happy around them. They want to to be bridge builders. They want to be peacemakers. But listen, friends, when any one of those things is what my core identity is in, and I can say this as an Enneagram three who is constantly feeling defeated at the end of the day because I didn't get as much done as I wanted to get done or I thought it was going to take this long. It's taken nine times as long and it's cost four times as much. Um, When my identity runs on a core personality, it's like building a house on a fault line. I'm just always waiting for something to fall through. I don't think of it that way. And what Jesus offers to us in the Father is just something that's more solid than that, than any other thing that I could find an identity in. And I know that that, that's just a, a very basic, simple list. But this is what actually is driving so much of our behavior. We're looking for these things in all sorts of places. And Jesus offers to us a different thing something that's going to not make us slaves to it. Because what if, what if that thing that I'm looking to come through for me doesn't come through for me? This is why in Romans 8.15, Paul writes these words to the Roman church. He says, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So Paul is, is pitting two things against each other. He's essentially saying there is one way to live, and that way is slavery a slave to needing to come through for these things or having these things come through for you. And there's another way, which is a way of freedom, a way of adoption, he says, in which we understand that our core essence is actually um, children of our Abba in heaven. The spirit of adoption by which we cry Abba makes us no longer slaves, but children of God. And so Jesus is offering this to us, claiming it will, will change our life. But final point, seeing yourself as one loved by God is very hard. It can be very challenging. Why? Well, there's lots of reasons. For one, a lot of times our own families of origin messed us up. And I'm certainly not throwing my parents under the bus in that. I think all of us have parents that have probably come through for us in some ways and parents that haven't come through for us in other ways. Some, some of you watching this have been really disappointed and let down by your parents. You really were looking to them to be more for you than they ended up being. And when that is your life experience, it's really hard to then take any of that and translate it to God and feel safe about that. It might be safer to think of God as a brother or as a coach. It might be safer to think about God in a number of different ways than as a parent. 
It might also be complicated to think of God as a, uh, as a father in particular, if actually there's a lot of pain and, and, around, and toxicity in your heart around experiences with men, around patriarchy, around the way that these things have been used to, to, to subjugate, the way these things have been used to, to empower some and disempower others. And I just want to say, uh, in case you don't know this, God the Father is not male. Um, God is spirit. In that sense, God is genderless. And if in your spiritual journey, it's actually more helpful for you in this season to adopt like the, the motherhood of God, like run down that road because God also reveals uh, himself, herself as a woman, as a mother throughout the scriptures. In fact, we're going to look at a text in a minute in which God just does just that. There's a lot of reasons why it might be complicated for you to get from where you are right now into a place where you're like, I am ready or I desire to feel deeply loved and known uh, and pursued by my Father in heaven. Um, and yet, I think it's worth pushing into. I think one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons why I'm spending this year in the Gospels and, and, and not just bouncing around is because, uh, honestly, like, reading through the whole Bible is going to do more challenging to you and, like, how do I try to square together all these seemingly disparate versions of God, and they're not. They actually, they, they sing in unison with one another. They sing in, as a symphony with one another, but it takes a lot of mental work to get there. And, and given the year that I've lived through and that my family's gone through and that many of us have gone through, I just need to be with Jesus who just constantly is telling me, you know, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's something to be pursued. It's something to be worked through. The damage from your past, the baggage that you carry into a relationship with God, it's something to be addressed. It's something to be talked about in community or with a pastor or with a counselor or a therapist. It's not something to just leave in a bag in the corner. Henry Nouwen, the great spiritual writer from the 20th century, Catholic, he says, although claiming my true identity as a child of God, I still live as though the God to whom I am returning demands an explanation. Can I accept that I am worth looking for? Do I believe that there is a real desire in God to simply be with me? I think one other challenge to us receiving God's love for us as his children is that many of us have such a low esteem for ourselves. I said this a number of weeks ago, but I think it bears repeating. We cannot love God if we hate ourselves. If we hate ourselves, we are in stark disagreement with how God sees the universe. And many of us are trying to do just that. We're trying to have some sort of spark in our life. We come to church, we do a community, we sing a song, whatever, and we're hoping to have it somehow lift us out of this place, but we, we hate ourselves. We have such a low version of how we see ourselves, whether that's mentally, bodily, whatever it is, emotionally. God loves you right where you are right now. He loves you exactly as you are right now. He loves you perfectly. And he couldn't be more in love with you than he is right now. This is how God moves towards us. And the prophet Isaiah, which we spend a lot of time in in, in Advent because Isaiah is like one of the Advent prophets, there's this, um, there's this main thread that runs through the whole book. And it has to do with knowledge and it has to do with forgetting, like knowing and forgetting. And one of the things that God says uh, pretty early on is that the, the, his people have forgotten him. And because they've forgotten him, they don't know him anymore. 
Um, and interestingly, in Isaiah 49, which is obviously way later, the people turn it back on God and they say, no, God has forgotten us. At this point, they're in exile. The walls have come down. The temple has been desecrated. Their families have been torn apart. Their women have been captured and raped. Their children have been taken as slaves. Their men have been killed and left to be fed to the birds. And they say, God has forgotten us. And this is what the Lord says in response in Isaiah 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. God, when he hears his people say, I think God has forgotten about us, which I have heard people say this year because it feels that way. It can feel like, man, where are you? Why are you so far away? Not only are we going through something that's very exhausting and difficult, but there doesn't seem to be in the midst of it some sort of spiritual fire that we can all huddle around. Instead, what seems to be happening to most people that I'm talking to is that everything outside of the church is, is sort of falling apart. And inside the church, it feels like there's no spark. That we're coming, we're doing routines, we're trying to find our way back to something. We're wanting to feel alive. We're desiring to have, you know, our hearts burst into life. And instead, what happens is we just sort of feel like, I guess we'll just keep doing the motions and eventually this will end. Eventually this will be over. And God just looks right at you and me and he says, can a mother forget her child that is nursing at her breast? And then we would say, probably not. And he says, even those could forget, but I will not forget you. You know what he's saying? Do you know what she is saying? That you are more near to God's heart, to your Abba's heart, than you could ever know. And that nothing you do or think, or say, or don't say. No amount of doubt within you. No amount of deconstruction you're in the midst of. None of these things can take you out of the heart of God. And when God wants to give you proof of this, he says, look, look at my hands. I've carved you into my hands. Your names are written forever on my palms. Which, of course, in a moment, I hope that you will get in your car and drive to communion, which is Jesus literally enacting that for us, in which Jesus offers his nail-scarred hands to the world and says, this is how much I have not, will not, cannot forget you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And as we end Christmas and we move into a new year and we start a new calendar year together with all of the what-ifs that are on the other side of even this moment right now, <laughs> we can know for certain, you can know, friends, that your Abba has not forgotten you, will not. And Jesus is inviting you and me into a relationship that will ground us and stabilize us through whatever is coming next. And so, Father, we ask that you would please help us to believe that your instincts as a parent are to never, ever turn away from us. That you know exactly what you're doing. That you are good. That even though maybe right now it may not feel true, we do believe, and I hold on to this with faith, that one day I will look back and say, 
All my life, you have been faithful. All my life, you have been so, so good. We trust you, Jesus, to make this real to us. Holy Spirit, you are the love of God poured on our hearts. We ask that you would cause this year to be a year in which our hearts grow because of your love. We give you this day, this season. We invite you to the table and we say, come Holy Spirit, come and feed us with the body and blood of Christ. Come and make it to be for us a food that nourishes the deepest parts of our members, that turns us into citizens of heaven, children of God and of your kingdom. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.